Hi, my name is Warren Perry and I'm a researcher for the Catalog of American Portraits here at the National Portrait Gallery. And tonight we're going to talk about the Douglas Shandor portrait of Franklin D. Roosevelt and some other things. This image, and actually what I'm about to say comes to us from, from the authority, Frederick Voss, his book, Portraits of the Presidents. And I'm actually just going to quote what Frederick says because I don't know that I could do this uh, better justice than, than him. This portrait of Franklin Roosevelt by Douglas Shandor was a study for a much larger composition which is sketched in miniature in the picture's lower left corner. The drawing depicts Roosevelt seated with allied leaders Churchill and Stalin at the Yalta Conference of February 1945, where the three men discussed issues related to the final phases of World War II and the coming peace. Chandor intended to do three versions of the picture, one for each country involved in the conference. He insisted, however, that all three men sit for their likenesses, and when Stalin refused to pose, the artist gave up his plans for his group portrait. Roosevelt returned from Yalta looking disturbingly haggard, and many intimates sensed that he perhaps did not have long to live. Yet, when Chandor confronted him several weeks later at the White House, he chose to underplay the signs of physical deterioration. The presence of the hand studies beneath Roosevelt's likeness bespoke the artist's fascination with what he considered his subject's most intriguing feature. Roosevelt could not understand that fascination and told the artist that he thought his hands were really quite ordinary, or as he put it, the hands of a farmer. I want to give you a brief biography of FDR. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was born in Hyde Park, New York, into a wealthy family whose money came from real estate investments. Actually, over many generations, I'm getting a little bit off book here, over many generations, as well as real estate and investments, the Roosevelt men had the good fortune to marry women who also were wealthy. He attended Harvard, graduated, then attended Columbia University Law School. He was married to Eleanor Roosevelt, his fifth cousin, in 1905, and was admitted to the bar in 1907. He was elected to the New York State Legislature in 1911, and he was a strong supporter of Woodrow Wilson in the election, the presidential election of 1912. He was named Assistant Secretary of the Navy in 1913, a post he kept until the end of Wilson's administration in 1920. One of Roosevelt's classmates at Harvard, Granville Clark, remembered Roosevelt at school describing what he considered to be a reasonable assent to the presidency with both the New York State Legislature and the Office of Assistant Secretary of the Navy being stopping points on the way to the White House. It's like he predicted his, his career. He also believed that he would be governor of New York en route to the presidency, and sure enough, he was elected governor of New York in 1928 and served from 1929 to 1932. One thing FDR could not predict was that he would be struck down by polio in 1921 this after being on the Democratic ticket for the presidency, being the vice presidential candidate on the ticket for the presidency in the 1920 election. He spent much of the 1920s, however, in convalescence. 
He was nominated for the Democratic Party for, by the Democratic Party for the presidency in 1932 and won the election in the midst of the nation's worst ever economic collapse. By invoking powers never before given to the president, Roosevelt issued directives which placed the government front and center in the efforts to recover the stability of the nation's economy. His administration sponsored work programs for, un for the unemployed, imposed regulation on banking and security industries, and created welfare supplements for Americans in poverty. Many of Roosevelt's initiatives were eventually ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, and Roosevelt's New Deal was the primary issue in the 1936 election, which Roosevelt won over Alfred Landon, 523 electoral votes to eight. With Adolf Hitler's armies marching all over Europe by 1940, Roosevelt was compelled to accept the nomination offered him by the Democratic Party, and again, he won the 1940 election this time against Wendell Wilkie, 449 to 82 electoral votes. After the Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, Roosevelt led America into World War II and saw the U.S. almost completely through to victory, succumbing to a cerebral hemorrhage on April 12, 1945. Now, something I want to bring us to now is why this talk and why tonight I think it was because a few years ago, the Cato Institute sent me one of these. And I was going through my, my pocket Declaration of Independence and Constitution of the United States one day, about this time five years ago, and I noticed, oh my goodness, December 5th. That's the anniversary of the repeal of Prohibition. Well, goodness gracious, if that's not a reason to celebrate. So. <laughs> We couldn't really have a talk here on the repeal of prohibition without attaching it to a portrait. And so the assistant director of public programs here, Ian Cook, and I said, if we've got to put a face to it, let's put FDR's face to it. What is this prohibition monster, and why did it attack us? Prohibition, or temperance, picked up a lot of steam with the founding of the American Society for the Promotion of Temperance, in Boston in 1826. Within a few years, the society had thousands of chapters, and by 1851, it was illegal to drink alcohol in the state of Maine. Alcohol consumption throughout the United States had been diminished by 75%, and even Abraham Lincoln was not in favor of alcohol use. Although the push towards temperance abated in the postbellum era, by the latter part of the 19th century, temperance was a first-tier issue in all of American politics. By the early 20th century, politicians were being called upon continually to weigh in on temperance. As early as 1911 in his political career, Franklin Roosevelt, then a senator in the New York State Legislature, had already had shown his political colors. This is from Gene Edward Smith's recent biography of Franklin D. Roosevelt called FDR. FDR's attitude toward prohibition was equivocal, never averse to bending an elbow himself, he nevertheless accumulated a perfect voting record in the Senate, according to the Anti-Saloon League. In January 1913, he actually introduced a local option bill for the League and became the subject of a laudatory editorial called An Advocate of Christian Patriotism in its national magazine. In this instance, FDR appears to have been too clever by half. Prohibition was anathema in New York City, and his opponents never tired of tying him to it. Down through 1932, the story persisted 
that whatever Roosevelt might say, there was a voting record to prove he was dry at heart. Two evils footed about the Constitution in the 19-teens. The first was income tax, and the second was prohibition. And it's odd in some ways that the first paved the way for the second. Prior to the 16th Amendment, the amendment which ratified the income tax, the government generated much of its revenue from taxing alcohol. As of 1913, the revenues from alcohol were not necessary because every working man in the United States was soon to be bound by law to give over a portion of his income to the government. Thus, prohibition was not a fiscally unsound idea. Morally, prohibition was favored not so much by the whole nation as it was by a lot of places in the middle of it. By 1914, 50% of all Americans lived locally or regionally in enforced prohibition. The philosophy behind temperance and prohibition was pretty simple. A guy works hard all week long, he gets his paycheck, well then on Friday night, he goes out and he blows his paycheck in a saloon. They called them saloons, not bars or pubs, so much as saloons. The thinking in the anti-saloon league was this. If a man is intoxicated, not only is he spending money on alcohol, but he's also more likely to spend money on things that he really, really shouldn't spend money on, gambling and prostitution. The anti-saloon league drew up these scenarios whereby a man would leave his children starving, and I'm sure this is not just imagination at work here, there's probably thousands and thousands of cases. However, there was a certain amount of sentimental drama in the way these stories were told. A man will abandon his wife and children for love of drink, a man will see a prostitute because he's under the influence, a man will then bring home diseases because of his affiliations. In 1917, Senator James Vardaman of Mississippi, and actually I was, I, look, I noticed this, uh, I noticed this in um, Maureen Ogle's book, Ambitious Brew. Senator Vardaman actually has a building down at Ole Miss named after him. I called my brother to confirm it. My brother is uh, administrator at the University of Mississippi. And he said, yeah, one of my offices is in there. Senator Vardaman said, just think of the absurdity of rationing bread to the laboring man and starving babe while permitting the liquor interest the privilege of using those grains to make a beverage that kills the body and damns the soul. By taking the grains and making alcohol, you're, take, you're not taking the grains and making food, and you're simultaneously poisoning, poisoning a man who participates in drinking. So what did America do about booze? Or what did America do without booze? A lot of places on the East Coast ignored it. A lot of places everywhere ignored prohibition. Now I want to tell you another story. Springfield, Massachusetts, 1876. A recent German immigrant named Christian Kalmbach and another German immigrant named Theodore Geisel built a brewery. Their brewery was nicknamed for them, come back and guzzle, and they were well-respected brewers and businessmen. Theodore Geisel had a son, Theodore Robert Geisel. He was born in 1879, and this young man became a second-generation brewmeister. That man had a son whose name 
was Theodore Zeuss Geisel, S-U-E-S-S -S is the Zeuss. By the time World War I broke out, the Geisel Brewery was producing roughly 300,000 barrels of beer a year. Tragically, and as it will turn out coincidentally, the first Geisel brewmaster, the immigrant Theodore, the one who started the brewery in 1876, died on December 5, 1919. With the onset of Prohibition and the death of his father, the second generation Theodore Geisel was compelled to give up brewing beer, but he was fortunately left an inheritance, so the third generation Theodore Geisel could enter Dartmouth College in the fall of 1921. Interestingly, this is the question we have to pose. Would this young man, if it weren't for prohibition, would he have become a brewmaster? We'll never know. The third generation Theodore Geisel finished his studies at Dartmouth in 1925, went on to study at Oxford a bit, and later began a career in writing and drawing. And I'm sure most of you know these are some of his books. Of course, Horton, here's a who. The Anheuser-Busch Corporation leased some of its acreage in St. Louis, Missouri in order to compensate for its losses in the brewing industry. Leased some of its acreage to the United States government so that they could house and warehouse munitions. Other breweries, including Anheuser-Busch, breweries like Pabst, Coors, and Yingling. Yingling was founded in 1826 and is to this day the, am I right on this, Mark? The, the oldest family-owned, Mark brews his own beer, so I'm really happy he's here. That's <laughs> good beer, too. Um, Yingling is the oldest uh, family brewery in the nation, and in times of prohibition, these guys had to make a buck, and they had to try to survive. This is where, oh, more visuals. And this is how some of them did it. Ice cream and malted treats. This is, my mom worked at Coors for 20 years. So. I had to show off my other Coors toys while we were here too. So. Later on, this is the beer truck. And you can't forget the rally car. All about the toys, that's what I say. Anyway, other Americans didn't struggle with the problem of prohibition at all. They simply uh, left the United States and settled in on the left bank of Paris. Testaments to the expatriate experience are such novels as Scott Fitzgerald's Tender as the Night, Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. Books like these are, are pure testimonials to the Americans, the time they spent in the 1920s. While stateside Americans were flooding speakeasies and buying regulated and illegal alcohol in alleys, Americans in Paris were enjoying their share of wines and spirits of all kind. One of the best biographies on this subject I read last year is Amanda Vale's Everybody Was So Young, and she tells great stories in there about Sarah and Gerald Murphy and the whole coterie of friends. These people were friends with Picasso, Fernand Leger, Cole Porter, the Fitzgeralds, everybody who was anybody in Europe in the 20s eventually went through the living room of the Murphys and probably went and attended a party. 
Um, there's one great story in there. You were reading last night, Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald always showing up in, in terrible condition. And one night they took the Murphy's crystal glasses they'd been drinking out of and just pitched them out onto the beach. Wild and, and raucous behavior in Paris in the 20s. By the 1932 election, prohibition had taken its toll on America, and there was a huge reluctance on the part of Franklin Roosevelt, then a candidate for the presidency, to state that prohibition was, was the way that the nation should continue. As a matter of fact, the claim was that prohibition was actually taking money from the federal coffers and handing it over to the likes of Al Capone. As Maureen Ogle again uh, records in uh, what I was sitting at my desk today writing this, I thought, it's the story of beer. It's a barley epic. As she says, um, Roosevelt announced during his campaign, it was time to correct the stupendous blunder that was prohibition. Prohibition was repealed 75 years ago tomorrow. People went back to drink and after work, many of them, or people went back to work and then after work they went home to have a drink. Bring us to the 1930s, which I just wanted to wrap up with my top 10 favorite uh, quotes that have been attributed to W.C. Fields. A woman drove me to drink and I didn't even have the decency to thank her. Drown in a vat of cold vat of whiskey, death, where is thy sting? I like to keep a bottle of stimulant handy in case I see a snake, which I also keep handy. I must have a drink of breakfast. If I had to live my life over, I'd live over a saloon. Once, during Prohibition, I was forced to live, on, live for days on nothing but food and water. Set up another case, bartender. The best thing for a case of nerves is a case of scotch. This is my favorite. Some weasel took the cork out of my lunch. The cost of living has gone up another dollar a quart. And then the last, not actually directly related to alcohol, but still a really brilliant thing. My illness is due to my doctor's insistence that I drink milk, a whitish fluid they force down helpless babies. <laughs> Thank you all for coming out tonight.